What up? This is Open Mike Eagle. Welcome to Season 3, Episode 9. Whoops. Episode 8. I don't always count well. You know what? It's either 8 or 9. Um, it would be really hard for me to stop and check and also continue to talk. So this is Episode 8 or 9, depending on... Um, if I was right with my first mind or my second guess. Anyway, the topic of this episode, we're, we're chronicling the life and career of Mr. Dante Ross. And at this point, he discovers signs. I mean, not necessarily discovered in this case, but he signs a very important hip hop duo. One of the greatest producers of all time on beats. This is Pete Rock and CL Smooth. So Dante signs him, puts him on at Electra, and he puts out albums that are pretty well regarded. I mean, I would say almost universally regarded as classics for people who are into rap from that era. And I think one came out in 92 and the other one came out in 94. And I don't think I heard either of them until 95 and 96. So when I'm hearing them, I am thinking, oh, this is classic material. These Everybody knows these are classic albums. So it's interesting to talk to Dante and hear that that's not necessarily how they were regarded at the time. And, you know, in some some metrics, by some metrics, they underperformed. And that ends up being an interesting part of Dante's story going forward. But let's get into it. Um, season three episode, something or other. Uh, I'm also about to be in Europe on tour but this podcast will continue as usual. Uh, if you like hearing me rap, though, check out my my socials. And if you live there, because that's where I'm going. Um, but yeah, things will be business as usual. Business is normal. This is the Stony Island Audio Network. This is what it happened was. I'm open Mike Eagle. Please like and subscribe and leave ratings and reviews. All that stuff helps. There's full episodes on YouTube a couple days after they're released. Um, on your streaming services check them out there if you want to see me and Dante talk with captured video appreciate you peace welcome man this is open Mike Eagle this is season 3 of what it happened was y'all we got another very special guest with us he needs no introduction but if you ever read the line of notes on classics from all kind of folks you know who knew where to find the dope it's dante serving stories like entrees i guess for season three it's a giant like andre mr no shit taker the third base hit maker eggnog innovator the odb motivator he signed a roster full of heavy hitters office messenger the grammy winner motherfucker dante ross in the 90s you would call him the plug signing act after dope act he saw in the clubs is Pete Seagull leaders dealing all the above. If you don't know him, don't call him a scrub. It's what it happened was. I'm ready whenever you are. Well, we have we have counted down. We are live. What up, y'all? This is Open Mike Eagle, and this is another episode of what had happened was we coming to you again with the lauded the exemplary the my favorite a and r uh in the rap business mr dante ross how you doing today good man you know fucking pandemic's back they said the shit was as contagious as chicken pox today damn the delta yeah 
Jesus Christ. 50 times more contagious than the regular strain. So this thing can just adapt at will. And it's like, I mean, I that's know, what man. viruses do. So True. That's what a cold does. That's why you can get a cold every year because you're getting right, a different strain of that cold. So. Yeah. All right. All let's, right. Talk, let's talk, let's talk about some... Not, <laughs> not, not Armageddon. Uh, but let's go back to when it wasn't fucked up. And, and <laughs> today, um, we're going to talk about one of the... <laughs> best rap duos of all time who you were somewhat responsible, somewhat responsible for their uh, entrance into the industry. They were signed to Elektra as a rap act during your time there when you're signing everybody. I don't think they had anybody else on staff. So, so I'll tell you what happened. My, I had the boss, Raul Roach. He gave me my job. Max Roach's son. I love him. The big homie. And he was like, I want to sign... He loved Heavy D and the boys. Kind of like an right. R&B kind of dude, a little bit. Um, he wouldn't be mad at me saying that. And He, he liked um, the New Jack Swing type of stuff that Heavy yeah, D was Yeah, he doing. liked whatever. Yeah, he, he understood the commercial appeal of Heavy D. And, and I thought Hev was good at what he did. I knew Eddie F a little. I knew Hev. And he um, was like, I want to do this deal with Eddie F. Um, he's got this group, Pete Rock and Seal Smooth. And I was like, Pete Rock is ill. DJ, he's on Marley Mall's show. And he plays his demos on the show. He's like, well, would you sit in on the meetings with me? I said, yeah. And he told me after one of the meetings, like the second meeting, he said, I want to do the deal, but I only want to do it if you'll co-sign it. I said, yeah, of course. I said, I, I would never hate on anything you want to do. And I said, P-Rock's really incredible and you should do it. So he, we did the deal. He's the, the assigned kind of A&R guy. I'm writing mm-hmm. Shotgun and he leaves the company to go to work at Capital. I see. Um, no, to work for Quincy, to run Quest. So Pete Rock and Seal Smooth becomes my day-to-day responsibility. Nothing had been recorded yet or completed yet. He was playing the demos on the air, too. He was playing a lot of his shit on, on the radio. So, you know, we were, we were hearing this stuff already, kind of. We're familiar with what he could do. He'd play right. a lot of his own stuff. He wasn't really doing the remixes yet. They hadn't really started, but he was um, he was friends with the brand Nubians. He's okay. from Yonkers. They're from New Rochelle, the town over. So they okay. were they were already really cool. Uh, what else do you have on your plate at the time at Electra when they become something that's suddenly part of your main gig when you didn't necessarily sign them? Um, brand Nubian, KMD, <laughs> Lisa New School. So and everybody we've talked about so far. And soon to be, um, right behind them is, is going to be um, Old Dirty Bastard. Okay. And it, uh, does Dell fit in there at all? Dell is in there too, who I forgot okay. about. Okay. Okay. Um, so um, Dell's in there too. So, so go with the flow of the creator, all sold out in good life. We're all on a demo. Got you. Um, so at this point... Um, I really just want to kind of check in on your life at this point because, you know, we started off talking a lot about, you know, what your day-to-day was like when you were working for Russell and them. And even when you were working at Tommy Boy, you've gotten really busy at Electra during this time. We're like 91. You got act after act after act coming out. And then like, so what is your day-to-day life like? Is it vastly improved from when you are at Tommy Boy? Like, oh, yeah, paint I that mean, picture well, for us. You know, one thing that'll vastly improve your life is finances. Yeah. And I'm making more money than I'd ever made before in my life. I become VP and then a senior VP shortly thereafter. Um, so I'm vice president and, and I got an assistant now. I got a nicer, I'm getting a nicer office. 
um, some of the problems that existed with with higher up A&R guys, particularly a guy named Howard Thompson, had ceased to exist. Mm-hmm. We had a new senior VP, Nancy Jeffries, who was very nice to me um, and encouraged me to, to do what I wanted to do. My boss liked me. There was an article in the New York Times that I was heavily featured in. Okay, um, wow. I was also in Paper Magazine as like one of the, you know, 20, you know, coolest people in New York. And so, you know, like my profile was pretty high. Like, you know, and I'm dating like um, this girl who's like kind of the it girl in New York. She's my like living girlfriend. And, and I'm going to like, I'm hanging out at a lot of like, I'm walking the line between like hanging out with like people in the Hamptons and like mm-hmm. gro- groovy like arty people and like being knee deep in, in hood shit because of my job. Mm. So, you know, I'm like a quintessential downtown kind of white, cool kid. And, and it's weird to say, but I was like one of the it people of the moment. Like, when, you know, my profile was high and, you know, um, I was a good looking kid. And, and um, you know, I'd done a lot of stuff before that. I'd been like a baby model and a skateboarder. And so, you know, it kind of all had came together. And, and a lot of people knew me when I was younger, saw me kind of obtain this form of success. And... And um, were giving me my props. And, and so I had a lot of entree to a lot of things in the world. I could do whatever I wanted. New York was my oyster. And I could get in anywhere in one second and get a good table in a restaurant. And, you know, like I had enough disposable income to buy anything I wanted short of like a house. Wow. And, and throughout this time, you're also working your ass off getting all of these Working my ass out. off. And I'm making a lot of music. So I'm mm-hmm. also making beats a lot with the stimulated dummies in our little studio. So, so it's kind of bugged out because I, you know, I'm making records in like Chunking or, or wherever I'm making them, Hit Factory on occasion, wherever I'm working battery. But I'm working in like the most trap house home studio too all the time. Mm-hmm. And, and um, I think that that helped me, helped me and hurt me. It helped me keep blinders on. And I didn't get too affected by all the sideline shit that I could have been affected by. I was pretty grounded. And on top of that, my girlfriend Tom was great, a great woman, and she kept me grounded. The downside of that is if I had been more of a social person outside of the social people I wanted to be with and more of an industry kind of guy, I'm sure I could have parlayed it into a much bigger career. But mm-hmm. I was pretty focused on the music itself, and I'm a music-first person. I'm not a social person. There's a lot of A&R people who continually have jobs because of who they know and, and how they, they operate socially. I'm not that guy. Um, right. I'd rather hang out with the rapper than the person who can write me a big check. It's the way and, I am. And, and in the way you are is, is connecting you to the music in a, in a, in a very you know, visceral way. Uh, so when you're first hearing Pete Rock's demos or, and, and you're hearing the stuff they bring in to get signed, what is it that jumps out to you about Pete's production? Well, it's a couple of things with Pete. So the horns, obviously. No one had used horns like that before. Maybe 45 King, mm-hmm. but he used them differently. You know, Pete had all the like crazy delays, you know, the quarter note delay on the horns mm-hmm. and all the reverb on everything. And everything was super bright. Yeah. The drums are super duper bright. And he's stacking and layering and chopping drums 
in a very unique way. So he's using bits and pieces of drums and, and a snare from Long Red on top of a chop of Funky Penguin with substitution in there, right? And the way he's mixing, matching, and layering breaks is crazy. So and the records he using, he's using are crazy. And the filter bass line shit is next level. Mm-hmm. So it's got a SP-1200 kind of swing to it with these crazy horns that are super bright and these really loud, bright, defined drums. I don't mm-hmm. think anyone had ever defined the drums. The definition in drums wasn't ever done that way before. Only Tribe, I'd say, had came, come close. But Tribe is more of a study of minimalism. Right. Pete was more complicated the way he chopped stuff. Large Professor somewhere in there too. But Pete shit slapped harder because it just was so bright. Um, and then what did you think of CL hearing him the first time? You know, CL to me, it's like, I think he's underrated. He was to me like an instrument. Mm-hmm. So some singers sing like an instrument. Gregory Porter for one, right? right. Like it's kind of a jazz way of singing. Nina Simone did it sometimes. Um, even Bobby Codwell. So I felt like he rapped the way that some people sing and use their instrument as a horn. They use their voice as a horn instrument or a string right. instrument. When down from out of town, off the wicked streets of New York trouble, me and my man mapped the plan to make a hefty bundle. Bless and wait to listen to greats from the basement gates, making a dumb place that cause quakes in other states. So I felt like he was complimentary, but maybe not exemplary. He wasn't Buster Rhymes. Right. But never did he hurt a song whatsoever. Exactly. He was a perfect compliment to what people Exactly. Doing and the way. tone of his voice matched the, the texture of the music. Since they came in the door with Heavy D and Heavy D was signed to Herb Uptown. wasn't in it. It was it was it was Eddie, Eddie, F. Eddie F. Heavy D's DJ, right? Eddie F and his man Dio Black, D Black, who I knew um from um a friend of mine, Jessica Rosenberg, Rosenblum rather, who was a big promoter. They were good friends. She was friends with Puff and all them. And I knew that crowd of people. So I, I was familiar with them. And Dio was my man. Mm-hmm. Eddie was always super cool with me. And Eddie is a very nice person. So mm-hmm. it was very, you know, and I trusted Eddie because what people don't know is Eddie really, with head, shaped a lot of that. And he's a strong component in the, the whole DNA of Uptown Records. So, so I had, you could say I knew I had a very trustworthy A&R person on their side of the fence already. Mm-hmm. And then you have Pete, and Pete's on autopilot because Pete is at this point one of the most creative producers in all of hip-hop. And, and, and you can be a great a creative producer. doesn't mean you're one of the best because maybe you're too creative. He was one of the creative and most tangible, a.k.a. the best producers in all of hip-hop. And, and I felt this, but it was confirmed to me by all my peers, large pro, Q-Tip, the Beat Nuts, blah, 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 blah. Everyone knew how good Pete was. Mm-hmm. One thing I was curious about, though, um, since they were in that Uptown universe, like, do you know why Uptown didn't just sign them? I don't think Eddie wanted to do it Uptown. I right. think he wanted to have his own piece. Exactly, that makes sense. Take it somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so why, when you guys signed them, like, what's, what's the decision to start with an EP, like why, why that, why that decision? We, we wanted to get their beak wet with no pressure and, and it worked and didn't work 
he had, he had so much material. He literally had 30, 40 songs. Mm. He had so much. He was making music all the time. He had a lot of music, and he didn't want to just put out a single. And God bless we put out an EP, because Go With The Flow was the first single. That's the mm. A side. The B side is the creator. Sent to, so Funkmaster Flex is he's checking for Pete. Pete's on the radio. Flex knows who he is. Pete's was him and Clark on the In Control show were unbelievable. Um, they alternated. Pete was killing it. So Pete is has a big rep as a radio DJ. Flex gets the record. Jessica manages Flex. Jessica's really close with with D Black Dio. She goes the extra mile. We get it in Flex's hand. Flex does something he never does, would never do now, because there's no A-sides and B-sides. He flips the record over, and he starts playing the creator. And I remember he literally saw me. He's like, yo, you got one, but it's the B-side, and it was the creator. That's so He's, interesting. He starts playing it on the radio, and that's how it broke, not in the clubs. He started playing it on his mix show. All the clubs picked up on it. All the club DJs started playing it. The creator with Pete Rock rapping right. was their first hit. That's And that's really interesting, right? Because this is before they really come out as a group. So then is there any thought to did Pete being a solo artist or is it still you know, pretty full steam ahead with the group? It's full steam ahead with the group, and I'll explain why. Pete doesn't write his own lyrics, or he didn't back then. Right. So Pooba and CL both had helped him at various times. Got you. So I want to say CL wrote the creator, not Pooba. But Pooba may have helped. My memory is a little off. I know Pooba wrote for Pete's sake and a lot of stuff on the album. He might have written the creator. I'm gonna I'll find out. I'm sure you can find out online. I should know. Um, <laughs> and and it becomes a hit. Mm-hmm. So he has a hit song with a very weird video, but it's a hit and it's playing in all the clubs. There's also a remix where Pete raps and I mean, so CL cuts on the creator, Pete raps, there's a remix the other way. So and that really? was one of the things they both could, I mean, cut, CL could cut, Pete could cut. And so Pete now becomes partially a rapper and Pete has a really cool voice. He has a cool ass voice. It's unique, mm-hmm. and he sounds good rapping. So, you know, it didn't alter the trajectory of the album. If anything, it made us say, hurry up and get the album done. So speaking of Pete's voice on the song, Mech and the Soul Brother, we hear Pete talking all over the record, right? Mecca and the Soul Brother. Mecca and the Soul Brother. This goes on to be his style, something he's known for. Do you have any memories of that from the time? So Pete was, he becomes an in-demand remixer. Tracy Waples, T-Wop, who, who worked for Eddie and them, and Dio goes to work at Def Jam. Tracy gets a, an A&R job 
and she gives Pete a gig. Remixing Shut Him Down. Down comes out and his remix is a hit. Pete is doing ad libs on it, he is rapping on it, and it becomes a thing. Mm-hmm. It becomes a thing. Everyone wants that. So, you know, and his his rap on Shut Him Down is amazing. Full respect, check one, hit the deck, let the man of the hour commit the soul power. For once I got to say, shut him down on a regular, cause a mass hysteria in the area. The funniest thing is. He's doing tons of remixes. He does an Adore remix. He does Shut Him Down. He just jump around. And he uses Pop Belly on all three of them. Wow. <laughs> he, he, and he used the Let It All, the Let It All Hang Out shit, the um, California Soul, the Gerald Wilson one. And he's, he's taking the same records and flipping them different ways. He's doing all this creative shit. And his, his trademark sound becomes him doing the ad-libs. He starts mm-hmm. doing ad-libs on everything he does. He, and, and he, he starts rapping on everything he does, including a Jump Around remix, which is also a hit. Get up, pack it in, let me begin. I came to win, battle me, that's a sin. I won't ever slack up, punk, you better back up. Try and play the role and you're the whole crew will act. And he raps on it, and it's a club hit in New York. So he has, before his record comes out, Shut Him Down remix hit, Creator hit, Jump Around hit. He has three hits that he's featured rhyming and doing ad-libs on before his album drops. Wow. So the EP comes out, and you say part of the reason to do an EP was to not have too much pressure. So I'm assuming that means not crazy expectations. And I want to say it was Eddie, Eddie F's idea to do the EP. Okay. But, you know, like, the thing with Eddie, like, so I kind of inherited it from Raul. And I, I, I trusted Eddie a lot. Eddie knew what he was doing. He had more experience than me, or at least as much. He'd been in the game longer than me. So, you know, I never really questioned anything they did. The one thing I questioned was they had this photo shoot for the first album that was terrible. I don't know who styled it, but <laughs> Pete and Chia had like Cavarici pants on and like Paisley shirts and, and they, were, <laughs> they were dressed like Heavy D's dancers. Ah, uh, okay. And I was like, I got to go. I was like, and I remember being scared to say like, can I, can I dead this photo shoot? This just ain't right. Mm-hmm. And, you know, because it costs like some money and, and they were like, yeah, and we deaded that shit, and we did a new photo shoot. So how is the EP received? Like, did it meet the expectations you all had for it? Exceeded. Wonderful. Okay. Exceeded. The source loved it. The source counted back then. Flex was rocking with it. And every producer I knew and everyone I knew was asking me about Pete Rock. When's it coming out? So the album comes out, Mecca and the Soul Brother, comes out in June of 92. Yeah. Are you in the studio with them a lot while they're making this, or are they, are, are they just kind of bringing stuff? How does it work in, with this particular project? So they worked at Green Street, and um, I, I knew a lot of people who worked there. I knew all the engineers, or I'd worked there a bit. And they worked with this guy, Jamie Staub, who later would mix Whitey Ford Sings the Blues for me. He's a very good engineer. And uh, my friend Gingy worked there. Like, he was my, my boy and shit. And all these other people, so... I would go by, but it was it was different than me going by to one of my Chung King sessions because mm-hmm. I kind of gave them a lot of space, and I would go by and 
with everything they were doing and wanted to explore. I didn't want to be obtrusive, and I wasn't. I usually ordered food for them and maybe smoked a little weed with them, and that was it, man. I probably, when we made that album, you know, if I'm doing like a, a bus, well, like a lot of records I go every day, I didn't necessarily go every day and sit there all day and work out the studio. I would mm-hmm. go, go, I work at the office, go home, and then swing by the studio for a minute or two on my way out to do shit. Just mm-hmm. say what's up, see what was rocking, ask for any mixes, get the tapes, that was it. So the stuff you're hearing in these sessions, this stuff you feel like is going to live up to the expectations that are building for the album? I think exceed the expectations. I was, I was more than uh, pleasantly surprised and enthusiastic. You know, he also made a lot of music for that record. Um, he did some things that I'd never heard anyone do on a record before. Mm-hmm. And as much as I was his A&R guy, I was picking up techniques. I was mm. studying and asking him how he did things in as subtle a way as possible. Pete then and Pete now are different people, as am I. He was very innocent in a sense and incredibly open and polite and um, generous with his knowledge and information. Mm -hmm. I never had a bad moment with Pete or CL in the making of that entire first record. Speaking of him doing things on records that you never heard before. Um, let's take a song like P- For Pete's Sake, for instance. The song starts with an interlude beat. Um, Pete had some of the best interlude beats ever, let alone the songs. Um, did you ever talk to him about, you know, what you might have, what, what it might have seemed like maybe they're not getting the most out of some of these beats because they're making them such short things instead of like full records? Not really, man. I felt like Pete was really, um, he was really on a path and I didn't want to fuck that up. I felt like Pete needed to be left alone to be Pete. And if I messed with him, I might mess with his art. And I did That's not real. want to touch that art. His art was beautiful the way it was and and um without sounding well well pete had no pretense about his art i don't mm-hmm. think he was aware of how incredible or beautiful some of what he was doing was i think he approached a very blue collar no pretense he's in his own world if you know pete he lives in his own world he's in the comic books and records and djing and basketball and football and he loves the giants and the giants and the knicks and He's a very unique individual. He he um and I don't I'm not insulting him. He's a bit of a nerd in a weird way, like mm-hmm. in a cool way, you know? And in like a record nerd, like comic book kind of way. Like and I don't mean a nerd, but you know, he's like a comic book dude. Right. Pete, Pete's in his own world, man. He you know, the basement, that's Pete's world. And that mm-hmm. record, a lot of that is Pete's world in his head. And and you know, he was a really um he was a happy guy. He was a nice person. He was young, and I don't know if he, he, he had very little ego at that point. I don't think he was, um, I don't think he knew how incredible he was or what he, mm-hmm. how incredible what he was doing was. And I know he, um, he was inspired by his peers, you know, by Q-Tip and M and, and Premier, greatly inspired by Large Pro and Premier. And I think the idea of the interludes, the way he did them, comes from Gangstar. 
But gotcha. he's going to do his version of it. Speaking of large professor, he's uh, credited as a co-producer on Act Like You Know. Uh, do you know what that entails, particularly for that song? I think he gave Pete the record. Got you. And I think he was there when Pete made it. On uh, Straighten It Out, part of one of CL's verses kind of breaks down a marketing plan uh, for the group. Hostility, a proper marketing plan so we can gobble up the dough, straighten it out so everybody know the kids are... And I was wondering if you remember whether or not that came from conversations you all would have about how they wanted y'all's business done. I mean, how I, I think that, that was just CL, like, you know, um, figuratively writing about, about, you know, a meeting we had had at some point. I mean, mm -hmm. CL, like, what no one knows about, about CL is he's fucking one of the funniest dudes ever. Mm. And he's way more street than Pete is. And, and just very, he's a very charismatic person. Like, I really enjoyed being around him. And him and D Black were super close. And, and Corey, man, he's just a cool motherfucker. He cracked me up. Like, they were, all, they were both cracked me up. But, but Corey's really funny. Like, I really, I really like him as a person. He's a really funny guy. Mm. Uh, we're going to talk about Troy. They reminisce over you, one of and the it, greatest... There's a lot to that one, too, yeah, man. Of course, of course. Uh, so, yeah, let, let's, let's start from the beginning on that, and let's hear everything that, that you remember about. So we, have, we have the album, and one, it's very hard for them to cut the songs down, but we get to the body of work. And one thing about Pete and CL is there's not a lot of... They, I don't want to suffer, but much like Gangstar, and even Large Pro at times, but less... Maybe not Large Pro, like Gangstar... Not a lot of big choruses. There's right. Not a, you know, there's not a one for all brand newbie in or, you know, what's a scenario? There's not mm -hmm. a lot of those obvious choruses. So I'm, I'm stuck. I don't know what the single is. Is it Straighten It Out? I thought maybe it was Straighten It Out. But I love Reminisce. You know, I love, like, The Basement, For Pete's Sake. I mean, the mm -hmm. whole record's really good. But I'm thinking maybe Straighten Out's a single. It's got a... a a big chorus, Eddie F and, and the guys are adamant about they reminisce. And there was never an mm. argument. And I was like, yeah, it's a beautiful song. I just, it doesn't have a huge chorus, but it is a great song. And I was like, if that's what you guys want, I'm going to back it. So it wasn't ever any kind of um, no argument or anything. And, and I backed it. Um, and, and the single comes out and it connects instantaneously. Funny, my high school friend Marcus Rayboy did the video. And Marcus was red hot right then. He had dated my friend, one of the SD50s, he dated my friend Gibi's sister, Nadia. I knew Mark, Marcus forever. He was a friend of mine, and he came through with the video. The video is beautiful. It captured exactly what was going on at that time. Um, stylistically, it felt at one with the song, and it started to get play on MTV relatively quickly. Hmm. Um, the song was, I don't know if it was a national pop hit, but it's an urban radio hit record. Big in New York, big in the tri-state, big in the nightclubs, 
and a beautiful record. And the way it starts off with just the horns by itself, you have to slow down whatever you're doing. It's one of those records you can play it against any record because the tempo is not at the front of the record. There's no drums. So right. that's, that's like an old trick. So it, Oh, like for DJs. Right. You can pretty much mix it into anything since right. it doesn't have drums right. in the beginning. So you can reset whatever you're playing in the club. So wow. from there, you can go to anywhere. If you're playing fast records, you can play mid-tempo records. You're playing slow records, play mid-tempo records. You can mix it to anything because it starts with the horns. And almost every DJ who plays it rocks it from the horn. Mm -hmm. Just the way that Shook Ones comes in, no drums, mm -hmm. right? And it has to stop everything. Though it's not as slow as Shook Ones, so it fit a little better. It was a club banger. It rocked from day one. I could not go out and not hear that record. It still plays in clubs to this day, and it is a game changer. Mm -hmm. Post that record becoming a hit and Pete Rock's ascent, the entire sound palette of rap music changes. And there's a whole school of East Coast-driven rap records that sound like Pete Rock. I mm -hmm. literally made my records purposefully not to sound like Pete Rock because wow. so many records sounded like Pete Rock. I feel like Tribe didn't sound like Pete Rock. The Beat Nuts didn't really sound like Pete Rock. But man, there's a whole school of music that sounds just like Pete Rock. We'll get back into it in one second, but I need to take a quick moment and shout out our sponsor, DistroKid. Man, so many of my homies use DistroKid. It's a music distribution service that makes distribution fun and easy with unlimited uploads and artists keeping 100% of their royalties and earnings. A million plus artists rely on DistroKid to put their music on Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube, TikTok, Tidal, Instagram, and all the major streaming services. A million plus artists, and I swear I know at least 100 of them. And now DistroKid has an app. You can use the app to upload new releases, see your DistroKid bank, and get notified when you've earned royalties. You can even check your streaming stats live. The DistroKid app is now available on iOS. Go to the App Store and download it. DistroKid also has a new feature called Instant Share that allows you to easily share large files securely with collaborators, producers, booking agents, managers, playlist curators, and more. Basically, anybody that needs access to your music, there's an easy way to upload it and send them a link. Go to distrokid.com slash instant share, drag and drop your files to upload, and then you can copy and send your link right there. It's free to send one gigabyte of files. That's like 100 MP3s. Don't quote me on that. Go to distrokid.com slash open mic. That's distrokid.com slash open mic. O-P-E-N-M-I-K-E for 30% off your membership. Without naming any names, just what do you think the characteristics are of something that sounds like a Pete Rock song? You know, according to the lay on the horns, a lot of reverb mm -hmm. on the horns, a lot of reverb on the vocal, very, very loud snare, mm -hmm. you know, with some reverb on it. Oh, and a filter, and a filter baseline. It's funny when, when I hear filter baselines now, I, I really don't care for them so much. And I made records with filter baselines, and when I hear them, I'm like, damn! I know so many bass players who could just play the baseline and made that sound better. But somehow, when Pete, Pete's Pete, man, he filter baselines better better than anyone, I think. But you know what? One of the things that's really interesting when I go back and start listening to music, so we can talk about this stuff. You know, so. Me and you talk, so far I've been talking a lot about records that came out in 90, 91, 89, 
And like when you listen to things in that context, suddenly when you introduce a Pete Rock, you can hear how new that filtered bass line is. Like I grew up in that era, right? So like it was just everywhere. But when you put it in that context, like it sounds just wildly different than everything else to hear like how he can just isolate the bass from a sample and then make that the foundation for the whole thing. A lot of times he was doing the shit where he'd chop up the bass line on different pads. So Mm. he's recontextualizing it. And the SP-1200, man, and, you know, he really had that, those things sounded great. Uh, And you can never underestimate Jamie Staub and the API board they used at Green Street. He, He recorded on that thing a lot, and it sounded great. And Jamie is a monstrous, monstrous engineer. So he mixed all. He, he did recorded the stuff, or he mixed. He recorded it? Okay. a lot of it. Pete would come with the demos, and they'd mm-hmm. they'd recreate a lot of them, and and he recorded it. A guy named Chris Champion recorded a bunch of it too, and a couple other guys. But but Jamie mixed all of it. And once Jamie and Pete connected, that was like hand in a glove. They had a very they had a sound, and Jamie is a part of that classic Pete Rock sound. Um, another single on the album was "Lots of Loving." Love that um, song. A, it's a love song. It sounds very different than a lot of songs on the album. You know, but Pete always had that in him. And mm-hmm. like, you know, Pete is um, Carmel City on, on the main ingredient. Pete, yeah. is, Pete is, you know, he's close to the Uptown thing. Heavy D is his cousin. You know what I mean? And he grew up around Puff and them and, and Hev's his man. And, you know, his early production stuff is with Hev. So mm-hmm. he's, he's not far removed from all of that. You know, he right. had... He has an R&B kind of thing in him. Um, so, you know, and, and that song was his version of that kind of music. On the basement, you got Heavy D, rest in peace. You got Pete's brother, Grap. Love uh, Grap. I just got to give a shout-out to Grap because Grap loves Always shout-out Grap. Grap's Grap, amazing. He's a super great dude. He did a lot of digging with Pete. He knows a lot about music. He's actually a really good rapper. Mm-hmm. And and um, more than all of that, Grap is, like, just a great dude. I love Grap. He's a wonderful guy. Yes, the younger soul brother, keep yeah. your eyes on the prize, cause you won't find another. Uh-huh. When the funk is played, the rhyme I display, what? quick to bust a dick so don't slip in the way of the kid with the flavor. The party people say... So you got Grab and Robbo that go on to yep. form I and I. Um, yep. And D-Dot. D-Dot, Baby, Baby Pa. I love D-Dot. D-Dot used to murder these, these he was features. He so good, he never yeah. came out. And he was so good, he was signed too to Pete's production deal. They had a deal to lecture and for reasons I can't get into right now, they never were released. And and um, D-Dot, he was a real street dude. That was Sadat X's man. And D-Dot's a legendary cat. Wherever he is, God bless. I hope he's okay. So uh, were D-Dot and I and I both on that same Pete Rock production deal? They so were. whatever happened, okay. So I covered both of those. Fake and Jacks. Yeah, I and I, I, had, I had a New York hit, and they never came out. To be released on the track. What? Killing two birds with a stone in yeah. a sack. Yeah. And writing exactly. Yeah, I love I loved all of that stuff. So that whole little world, man, like all that yeah. stuff's real fascinating to me because I loved all that music a lot. Uh, skins, it's the got best. Grand, Grand Poobah on it. The best, one of Poobah's uh, best verses 
is so dope. The way he's skipping over that beat is just incredible. Like classic, classic Grand Pooh sound. He said, drop, drop a load and eat some French toast, read the paper, and it won't be the post. <laughs> that was just so fucked up. That was like the greatest little little joint. Yo, that shit was great. And he wrote Peach Rhymes. He wrote for Pete's right. sake. Yo, I don't even know if he got publishing on the records. Mm. You know, he went and did it on the love. Pete gave him a beat that we never used for Brand Nubian, the Puba Maxwell, yes sir, honey, that never came out. And and I don't know, man, Pete and, and Max was always super duper cool. Yeah, because that's what I read. I read that Poobah was writing Pete's rhymes for beats. For beats. And, the beats and, then, and, and, and then somehow the beats, it was, not, it was not purposeful. It just never came to be. And to my knowledge, there's no animosity about it. And it's so, it's so almost sad, though, when you hear how great Poobah sounds on this beat, what might have been Man, if Pete they Rock, hadn't really Pete put Rock that together. Pete Poobah's whole solo album. Nowadays, I'm on some extra beat careful. I take precaution before I slide up in the slit. Man, that I put aluminum foil on my Because if you catch it, boy, that's Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, so this album comes out, and there's high expectations for it. Um, so what was the reception like from your memory? It was great. I mean, I thought it underachieved. I thought it should have been bigger. It lost steam after the first single. We sold 400,000 records. We didn't get a gold single or a gold album. We are right underneath in the 400 thousand range. I think Pete, I think I think now the reminisces is a gold single. I don't have a gold plaque for it. But you know, it's a classic and sometimes you can't measure everything in in your plaques and your sales. And that record is an absolute classic. I'm proud to hang my hat on being involved in it. You know, I was at this thing that Flex mm-hmm. did and it was Pete Rock and Shell Smooth Show and Brand Newbie maybe like ten years ago, less than ten years ago, at BB King's and I went and they called me on stage, and um, my man was in the audience. My boy Mike, a couple of my peoples was there, and uh, my friend Nick Diamond was there, and Pete and CL was talking about me, and, and Poobah gives this crazy speech about me and, and tells everyone in the audience everything they see on stage I was in part responsible for, and then Buster comes out of the audience, and I remember my man Mike was like, yo, he's like, you got a Grammy already, but you got a ghetto Grammy tonight. And I was like, he's like, he's like, that shit was better than 10 plaques. And I was like, you're not wrong. That's also just a testament to me and Buster. We have a very special relationship, and, and it's different. I just can't explain the other. Now, I mean, me and Poopa are like that, too, me and Everlast. One thing about making music with, with people is um, if you proceed righteously and you understand as an a person what your, your duty is, and that is to protect your artist's art in the most undiluted way possible to to not censor their art to allow them to make mistakes to take chances to win lose create on their own terms and of their own merits if you allow that to happen um you are doing your job and your duty to the art and to the artist and i try to always think about that when i do my job and i kind of learned that from from russell and maybe from rick a little bit um but Maybe I stumbled upon it my, myself. Um, that's just how I, I thought you do it. And it, it goes back to something bigger than that. If you're working with people, with the right people, talented people, you ain't got to babysit shit and fuck with it and meddle with it right. and play with it. You have to protect their vision, right? You have to support the vision. So that's how I approach A&R, period. Hmm. You know? And unfortunately, the, the talent pool isn't what it once was. And things are different now. And, you know, 
maybe that ethos doesn't work as much. See, like I always am involved and supportive mm-hmm. and want to have dialogue. Um, but I also don't want to pollute your music. So, And I made the mistake a few times of polluting music. I really feel like on Dance For Me, I shouldn't have put that slash stone in there. And mm-hmm. I never wanted to do that again. Mm. You know? I just don't want to do that. So, you know, and Pete, look, Pete's on autopilot. Like, I said this somewhere, like, Pete Rock, just he went in, he made music four or five days a week. He went to the studio. You heard some shit that blew your mind. You smoked a joint and ordered dinner. <laughs> Gave everyone a pound and were like, yeah, let me get the tape. Let me get uh, the mixes. That's it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, I mean, it was that simple. And that studio that worked at Green Street had a special special vibe. I, I really loved that studio. And, and I, I didn't work there as much as Chung King, but the guy who ran it, Dave, and the neighborhood it's in in Soho, it's across from the Green Street Cafe where Steely Dan wrote Black Cow about, mm-hmm. you know, at the, Green, at the Spring Street Cafe. Like, you know, they're talking about that shit in the song. It's, it's a special place in the city and a special time and a special record. And I always attach walking down that block to that song. It's really fucking cool. So going into the second album, yeah. was, was there anything that you wanted to, or anything that y'all felt like maybe y'all should tweak about the process, or was it just like go in and come out with another one of these beautiful works? So man, we're, everything changed by the time we go to the second album. I have a new staff at work, mm-hmm. Sylvia Rohn's involved. She's on my shit. She wants to be involved. So this is this. So this is after the KMD incident. Then there's kind of a regime change. Well, so she's not there when I'm making the album. Got you. But when I deliver the album, it's delivered to her, and she tells me she doesn't hear a single. So and this, and we're talking about the second album now, or okay, second. Got you. And, and I'm scared, and I liked I got a love, and so did Pete, and that was the first single we picked. We should have picked Carmel City. We didn't pick the right single, she didn't like it, and it didn't fly, and we got a record that didn't perform like the first one. And the group had a lot of tension around them. Eddie F's no longer involved, Dio's no longer involved. Ruddy, Mm. rest in peace. Pete Rock's brother is the manager. It's just different, man. And the whole atmosphere at the job is different. I'm getting second-guessed a lot. You know, not to discredit Sylvia Room, but she's she's going and talking directly to the band and not involving me in the dialogue. And And it's hurtful to me, and I think doesn't do the band a service. Right. I don't think she knew the music the way I did. Do you know any of what she was saying to them? Like what she was trying to make happen? Well, she wanted to know if I was terrible or not. That's one thing I was sure. <laughs> she was definitely trying to find out if I sucked. She's doing and, recon, okay. You know, and, and, and they wrote for me. They came back to me that they did that they loved me. You know, you know and um she she was contemplating, I think, sending them back in and didn't. But mm. I also think she was like, I could probably put this out and get rid of it and have an excuse to get rid of D. Ross and blah, blah, blah. I think there might have been a bigger idea at play. 
I don't know, maybe she wanted a hit record, but it wasn't a hit record for various reasons. I think it's a phenomenal record. It doesn't have a they reminisce on it. Right. So they put out this album. Y'all put out this album in 94. Seven months later, the group was broken up. Yep. Eddie not being around and Dio not being around, it, it was different. There were some other elements, aka the young guns around, and those guys were... Who was the young, the young guns? So the young guns were, I don't want to say gang, but a nefarious group of guys from Mount Vernon, Yonkers area. I mean, Pete's from Mount Vernon, not Yonkers. Right. I, I said Yonkers earlier. They're all from Mount Vernon. Um, the locks are from Yonkers. They're all right next mm -hmm. to each other. And um, they were wild dudes. They're guys who were, you know, in the streets, doing what people in the streets do. And, and um, they somehow were signed to Pete Rock's production deal, too. Mm. And there was a lot, of, a lot of people around Pete who didn't necessarily have Pete's best interest at heart. And Seattle is not going for that bullshit. He's kind of more, you know, he, he's not Pete Rock. He's, and he also doesn't have anything they want. They all want something from Pete. Right. So, you know, there was a lot of things distracting Pete. And I think he was putting the crosshairs a few times. And, you know, there's that going on. And then there's the need to repeat. And there's all the chatter that CL's not the one. You should be rocking with this one and that gotcha. one. And, and meanwhile, dude, he's in demand and producing stuff for Nas and Run DMC and everything right. else. Right, all that. Mm -hmm. So, you know, Pete's the star. It's Pete Rock and Seal Smooth, not Seal Smooth and Pete Rock. Mm. You know, it's like Jazzy Jeff from Fresh Prince. But CL doesn't get a Fresh Prince look. So, you know, that, that's where it is. And I think Pete had some resentments towards CL and vice versa. And there was bad, bad juju around it. So quickly, let's let's talk about the singles, right? So I gotta love is what y'all ended up going with. Yeah. And when when y'all look back at it like that more than a move, then y'all drop "Take You There." Um, what you what do you think about that one, or what was what was the conversation around that one? I didn't personally like "Take You There" so much. Sylvia Rome picked that record. Right, because that seems like a dancey kind of record a little bit. Like, it's kind of up-tempo. Like, but did it go in the clubs? Was, were people playing it? Nope. I see. Carmel City connected in the clubs a little something. Let me take you on a journey through Carmel City. CL's God and the ladies got to hit me off. Falling on the set now, baby, what's the matter? When all this is hot sex served on the platter. Into my flow so I can hit this show with something rugged. It's mainly how all the honeys dug it like every single city was, was, was dope. Uh, and then y'all dropped Searching. Yeah. Which I think is an amazing song. I love it, but it didn't work. It didn't work as a single. So when you think about the second record versus the first one, like personally, right? Let, let me just talk personally for a I like the right? first one better because it was mm -hmm. brand new and more exciting. You didn't have the 18 fake Pete Rock producers in between. So it didn't uh, sound as new and special and innovative when it came out. For me, I go back to the second record a lot, though. You know, I, I end up going back to that record. There's it's something really, about it's really musical. 
Yeah, it's it's like to me, it's like the same kind of dynamic between like low in theory of midnight marauders, right? Uh, and in this one, it would be Mecca the Soul Brother versus Main Ingredient. I'm a Midnight Marauders guy, and I think in this case, I'm a Main Ingredient guy. Like I like like it when the sound is like polished. You know what I'm saying? Um, so this is the album I come back to a lot. Like some of my favorite songs that they made as a duo, um, or on this one. So this is a couple songs I'm just gonna ask you about, just because they're like my favorite yeah, shit. Yeah, nah, I love that record, man. That record is, you know, it, I gotta be honest, it's. Came a little hard for me to listen to because it didn't mm. perform like, and I was like, it's so good. So sometimes when that happens, I want to go back and listen to it because you know what? I, I feel bad. Had, I had a question like that written down here because it, it it's kind of where I'm coming from now too, and and I didn't I didn't expect you to say that that clearly, but so like I probably didn't hear this album until '96, right? But when I, I heard it. it, it sounded like, oh, this is that classic shit. Like, this is that classic sound. Like, I love this. And I think I always had it in my head that everybody thought that. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? From when it came out. When I'm going back and listening and doing research and seeing what the press said at the time and all of that, like, it's been kind of a shock to me to see that this album kind of is thought of as underperforming or, or flew under the radar. And that's what I was wondering. Like, because to me, this music sounds timeless. But for you being so close to it, does your proximity to the business kind of, kind of, in some ways, taint your ability to enjoy it? So, uh, yeah, it did. And for a couple of reasons. I did not necessarily feel comfortable with what was going on at my job. Mm -hmm. And this record was, in 2000, metaphors for that. Hmm. So my emotional connection to the record is a little framed in how much my wonderful work environment had altered to a terrible work environment where mm. I felt like I was on the run and under the gun. And the two things that were cited as that are this and 2000. Grand Poobah's 2000. Yep. Got you, got you. That's really real. That's really real. Um, but I gotta, I gotta bring up a couple songs just because uh, uh, do. Know, I, I love them so much. The Joint In The Flesh. That's great. One of the best, like one of my favorite beats of all time. That guitar loop is just incredible. And we get another like really dope couple of cameos, uh, Robbo and uh, Dida on that. Um, just, just, I don't know if you had any memories around the making of that song or just how that song hit you. Know, you know, I wasn't really around when they made a lot of the main ingredient. Right. That's another thing. I wasn't really involved like that. It wasn't, it was just, it didn't feel good, you mm -hmm. know, and I wasn't around it. Um, I did. I really did think Dida had a standout verse on that song, and I was excited about Dida. He he was exciting. He was um. He had some energy around him, you know. Mm -hmm. He was he was kind of gangster, and I kind of liked that. Um, he felt like a star to me. Yeah, he he definitely he had he had that that uh charisma with the super dope punchlines. He reminded like, me of Freddie Fox a little bit in a way. Yeah. <laughs> I can see that. Even in the mirror, it just doesn't get any clearer. I hear a funky beat and I gotta get nearer. Kaboom! Stepping in the sound room mellow. A dangerous, flavorous fellow. I can see that. Um, speaking of Robbo, there's a song worldwide on here. It's great. It's a Robbo solo song. Yeah. Is that a business decision in terms of setting up I&I? &I? Not really. That's just Pete being Pete. 
It's PBMP. Um, also, one thing I always thought was cool, and it's timely now, how many fucking Bismarck and Big Daddy Kane samples are on this record? Yo, the Bismarck Key stuff, and, and it's especially timely now because we just lost Biz. So, like, when I was going back and listening to this, every time I hear Biz, it, like, caught my ear. And I don't even know if I really was conscious of how much sampling of Biz they did throughout this record. A lot of, a lot of Juice record. Crew on this record. Yeah, huh? A lot. Check it out. That's on a lot of records. Wow. And now, and, and that's just Pete being Pete again, just like he, yeah, that's Pete, the bag he I mean, was that's in. That's the shit that Pete loves. It's funny because Pete's production style is all over Whitey Ford Sings the Blues. Hmm. And I used Jamie to mix it because I wanted my drums to sound different than they usually sounded. I even had the Check It Out sample on there and we realized it was going to cost us a lot of money, so we had Everlast do it ourselves and do the beatbox, but we had the Biz samples in there, and we had, the, we had Biz and the Kane sample, and, and I used a lot of little things like that, um, and there was a big, big, big... I, when I made Whitey Ford Sings the Blues, I wanted to make a rock version of Mecca and the Soul Brother, mm. musically. That was a, a lot of my influence, a really big influence on me, and, and all the way I did production... Um, live snares down the track and, and just shit that was like very influenced by Pete. Pete was, was a huge influence on the way I made records. And, you know, Pete was one of the best, man. He, he kind of stayed locked in that sound um, and is kind of still very connected to that sound. But, man, he's a bad motherfucker. That's real. That's real. Uh, speaking of Pete, one more time, uh, Escape on the record is another Pete solo song that, that is awesome. Check it out, yo, one, two, I check it out, escape, escape. Yeah, I like uh, it. Do you know if Poobah wrote that one too? Or I, believe, I, be, I believe Grand Poobah wrote that. Nice. But it may have been, it could have been Grap even. Mmm. Mmm. Well, yeah, I just wanted to touch on a couple of joints, man, just because, like I said, it's an album I go back to a lot. I but, mean, I, I was like, I get physical, and I love, I, I got physical a, I gotta love, I love, I gotta love. I just, that ambassador sample is so cool. I liked it. I, I, I think it was, it always felt a little too happy for me personally, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, it was happier than I was. I got it. So, like, I didn't necessarily connect to it like I did some of the more, like, down tempo What do you think the single should have been? Man, um, damn, that's a, that's a great question. But I think Carmel City is dope. I think um, the actual the song, the main ingredient. That's like I don't know song. what that sound or that sample is. That kind of springy, bouncy. Like yeah, I don't I think know what it is. That that would have been amazing. Like that's that sounds like an instant head nod. You know. I always like the Donald Birch at all the places. All the places is amazing. Places, places, places I've been. I've been in places before. Places I've 
Especially starts with the long with like that James Brown that long string sample, yep. and then it it just hits like man, yeah, like this. Yo, a crazy one when we were mastering the record, Pete was like, "Yo, I forgot to do these skits." And the mastering guy was like, "What do you mean?" He's like, "Yo, I want to come and drop the skits," and then he was like, "You can't do that today." And he showed up the next day, two day mastering session with his SP twelve hundred and dropped the skits right to tape, right after. So the interlude, the interludes. Yep, that incredible wow. Hulk one. Right out of the SV twelve hundred onto tape. Wow. Yep. It's amazing work, man. Absolutely amazing work. And it's 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 just something to go back and man, and, I just and wish listen. it had done better, man. Yeah. You know what's funny it about should that? Have. You know what's funny, like so you know what Fat Boy Slim is? Yeah. So Fat Boy Slim was I guess he was popping. So I was in this restaurant and I sat down, it was in Soho this Japanese restaurant, and I looked over and I seen Money. He was there. And he had mm -hmm. been in a band called the House Martins. They were on Electra. They had one hit before he was, and then he was dubbed international. The Just mm -hmm. Be Dubbed to Me, the, the Guns of Brixton sample. You know, that was, that was kind of a hit record, right? Beach International, I mean. So, so and that was on Electra too, Fake Soul to Soul record. And I sat down next to him and I said, Norman Cook? He, he looked at me and said, yeah. I said, Dante Ross. He looked at me like I was a piece of garbage. And then I was like, yo, I was like, yeah, I was like, yeah, you know, I work at, I worked at Electra, like, you know, and he looked at me, and I was like, yeah, um, yeah, we, we want some gangster shit. And I was like, you took that right off my heart to the left v, VHS tape. And he's like, that's you? I was like, yeah, CL Smooth's voice, you took it right off the VHS. But don't worry, we ain't going to sue you. I ain't gonna, no one's going to sue you. And he looked at me and he was like. He was like, I love Pete Rock and Seal Smith. I was like, yeah, I could tell. Because the front of your album you cover, you jacked the main ingredient. Oof. I said, that's the same exact picture. And he's like, it is. It's inspired by that. I said, yeah, of course it is. And then he, <laughs> he looked at me all funny. like, And I was looking at him like, yeah, that's right. I put you on blast. I didn't say it. But then I seen him like a few years later at the Grammys. We were both nominated. We was walking in together. And he was my, he remembered me vividly. We were, he was my best friend that day. <laughs> you know, and, and. It just That's was funny, funny to me that I had to check him because, you know, that shows you, in a nutshell, the influence that Pete Rock had on the world and on, on like, a whole different scene and culture. You know, a guy like Fatboy Slim was greatly influenced by Pete Rock. And you look at Luke Cage. And every, every title of every episode coming from... So the first one, the the first one was Gangstar, mm -hmm. and the second season was second season. Luke Cage. I mean, was, was P-Rock and Seal Smooth. After they broke up, did you try to sign them to solo deals? No. Or no? No. And Pete Rock got his compilation deal at Loud. It's like we always say that first record is often the, the biggest, bestest one because your whole life force goes into it. And yeah. I don't want to say that that was the case with Pete, but, you know, that first one is the moment in time to me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Very few rap, very few rap groups get better with releases. Tribe's one of the few. Yeah, I think that's safe to say. I think that's safe to say. Um, and then, how much longer after they left, especially since your work environment has gotten markedly worse? I mean, how long did you? Me stay? and Emily, I think I think they were still on the label when I left, but we knew the end was coming. They were getting dropped. Yeah. It was there was it was clearly going to happen and. There was all this minutia over Pete's production deal. Um, Sylvia was not a fan of it. 
And mm-hmm. I knew that she was going to get rid of that thing. And you know what? She, I, I believe she intended to make me the scapegoat. And I was mm. out, so I was the scapegoat. Damn. Um, yeah. So what year did you leave? If it's you, a little, if it's a little blurry. I want to say 95, because I do Everlast in 97, 98. And I was at Def Jam um, not going to work for at least two years before I did mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. So I if, leave. The last thing I did at Lecture is, is All Dirty Bastards start the Buster record. Mm-hmm. Pete's getting thrown to the wolves. Poobah's going to get thrown to the wolves. Dell's getting thrown to the wolves. And Dirty and Buster are going to live. Everyone else going to get and, and KMD already got thrown to the wolves. They've been yeah. gone. Yeah, KMD was the first I mean, ones I, to. I, 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 I would... I would dare to say Silver Roan doesn't doesn't know that MF Doom and KMD are the same person. I believe that. I think there's a lot of people in the world that don't. It sucks for people in the music business that worked with him for that to be the case, but it's not surprising. No. And and I think if she was asked about Black Bastards, she wouldn't recall being um weighing in on the artwork or it's or it's um or or you know, it's offense. And mm-hmm. probably has no cognizance that that was also MF Doom. And probably loves MF Doom because everyone's supposed to love MF Doom now, not because they do love <laughs> MF Doom. Uh, and, and that's not to vilify her. That, that goes for a lot of people. I think that's everyone's, real. everyone's got to say they love MF Doom now or you're a sucker, but you know. Yeah, man. It's funny. that You know, I used to listen to MF Doom when I was in high school, right? Like his first MF Doom singles came out in 97, and I was hearing them on college radio and running them shits back over and over and over again. And, you know, we was, my, me and my crew, we was part of the weird folks, you know what I'm saying? Like, everybody was listening to Tupac, and they was, they was, they were confused by what we listened, listened to. But, you know, fast forward 10 years, them same people was on Facebook talking about MF Doom. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And, them and same I, I, folks. I wonder if they only knew about him from Gorillaz. Where did they find out about him? I like, still don't know. Did, did they listen to, to gas draws and all that? Nah. They, I, I think if anything, they, they you know, it might have been around a mm, food, like maybe even like Danger Doom or something like that, where they kind of heard of them. But, you know, they everybody wants to act like they was down from the beginning when I clearly remember. <laughs> I mean, look. <laughs> they were know, not. Everyone wants to give everyone their flowers when they die, right? Like I was thinking about it. And I think about it all the time. Like. When I die, like, you know, there's motherfuckers who I know didn't check for me and I didn't necessarily care for who are going to sing my praises, you know? Mm-hmm. That's just going to mm-hmm. happen. And, and I, I've, I told a few people, yo, if so-and-so comes with some, you know, how much they miss me, go punch that motherfucker in the mouth. Because <laughs> that motherfucker's not my man. There you go. And I think, you know, I think that's, that's, that's a good place for us to... End off this conversation, man. Um, I think that y'all's partnership, you and Pete and CLs, and even if you were, you know, partly just the conduit for the label, it's just, I'm really glad that that was able to happen. I'm really glad that that music was able to come out. Uh, yeah, next time we sit down, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about Del the Funky Homo Sapien. Stony Eye.